Our scripture today comes from uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 32 uh, to chapter 33, um, so verses 30 to 6. Uh, that's confusing to actually have to say. Um, <laughs> it's on page 139 in your free Bibles. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out from the book that you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on them their ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Uh, when I was in high school, I ran cross-country and track. And of course, we had to run during the summer to stay in shape, although senior year, I kind of forgot to do that. Um, even when the sports weren't actually going on. I used to listen to sermons while I was running, actually, uh, sophomore year. And one sermon that I remember, particularly remember was one by a Welsh guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He had this awesome accent, and I'm not sure, going to say that wasn't part of why I listened to him. Um, at some point in the 1960s, he preached one of the most impactful sermons I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and it was on this passage, uh, which I was listening to, to one summer while I was running. So I'm leaning a good bit on that sermon today. And if you want me to find it for you, if you just want to hear his accent, um, I can do that for you. <laughs> uh, so for some context, God was meeting Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the Torah. But Moses was up there for a while, and the Israelites got impatient, and they decided that they needed to worship another god. They built a golden calf out of their jewelry, and they prostrated themselves before it, and they worshipped it. And they said, this is the god that brought us out of Egypt. Of course, God was the real God who that had brought them out of Egypt. It was an absurd thing for a people who had been adopted by God and saved from slavery to take that incredible gift and worship a God they made with their own hands and give that hunk of metal credit for why, why they were uh, free. They had lived in slavery for many generations in Egypt, and it seemed like they, they were determined to remain in slavery by serving this hunk of metal as their master. So God was angry with them, and he basically said, look, if you, want to, if you want that hunk of metal to be your God, so be it. I'll leave you alone. But I promised you that I'd give you the promised land and that I would bless you, so I'm going to live up to that promise. 
I'm going to send an angel in front of you to take you to that promised land, but I'm not going with you. First of all, look at how God fulfills his promises, even when his people never fulfill their end of the deal. It's kind of incredible. Now, at that point, the Israelites had a decision to make. It's a decision that you and I will have to make all the time, whether we realize it or not. And there's a deal on the table for them. Here are its, its um, terms. Not only were they allowed to leave Egypt and leave slavery, they would get an awesome land flowing with milk and honey. They'd be prosperous and lived a charmed existence forever. God had just started giving them a bunch of rules that they had to follow so that he could live among them. And following rules is hard. I don't like them. You don't like them. But what God was saying was that he was releasing them from their obligation to follow those rules. The whole point of the rules was that God was going to be with them, and he was going to give them that land and bless them. But now God was saying that he would bless them, and they wouldn't have to worry about living with him and following his rules. It was a great deal. They'd be fools not to pass it up, or to pass it up. Um, Their lives would be made materially better in all sorts of ways, and they wouldn't even have to worship God to pay for it. They did an angel to protect them, and then they're free. They can do whatever they want, and they'll be blessed. This is all that they could have wanted. It looks like all upside for them, doesn't it? The deal on their table is that they can either get rich and have all kinds of material comforts, freedom from physical slavery, and a prosperous life, and not need to follow God's law and keep him with them. Or they can beg God to take them back and go back to following God's law in hopes that he would remain with them and that he would give them what he was going to give them anyway. It seems like the answer is obvious. Tell God to send an angel in front of them and leave them alone. But that's not what the Israelites did. It may have been one of the only times in the entire Old Testament where the people of Israel really displayed spiritual understanding. They were offered all the blessings of their covenant with God without God himself and without the law that he required from them so that an angel could give them what they wanted and leave them alone. But the passage says in verse 4, when they heard this distressing message, they mourned. And you have to wonder, in what universe is this a distressing message? They're getting everything they wanted. Why should they ever mourn over this? Seriously, I want you to think about it from this perspective for a minute. They had just been led out of slavery from, by God, but God was asking them to do a whole bunch of difficult stuff. Now God was offering them all the blessings of having God with them with none of the drawbacks. They would be given the land where they belong. They would get milk and honey and prosperity. They wouldn't have to wander around in the desert for another 40 years. The angel would make sure that they win every battle they come across. It's everything they could have ever asked for. But these Israelites, in an incredibly rare move, showed great wisdom. Why didn't they want to go? The answer is simply this. God wouldn't be with them. If God wasn't with them, they wouldn't go. They could have all kinds of successes in battle. They could have infinite resources. They could have a happy and fulfilled life with an angel watching over them. But if God wasn't with them, it wasn't worth it. They didn't care about getting the promised land and winning battles anymore. If God wasn't with them, they didn't want to go. Now, this text right near the end of the book of Exodus, I think, is really key to understanding the whole point of the book and even the whole point of the Old Testament. 
Because it's really easy to think about the gospel and get really excited about what it promises us. We should be excited. Because the gospel promises the salvation of the entire world. It promises that, is every, that everything that's evil in this world will be undone and that peace and justice will finally reign. It's easy to get really excited about the promised land and the milk and the honey, but lose sight about what's, uh, what it's all about. Because in the end, it's all about the presence of God. God could send peace and justice through some kind of angel. He could get his angels to come down among us and make it so wars end and people don't fight each other over nothing anymore. But no matter what, that wouldn't be a happy existence. We were made for God to be with us. And we can't really be truly satisfied until he lives with us. And I really mean with us, like in our hearts. If you had a magic genie that gave you infinite wishes that would satisfy even the smallest desires of your heart whenever you wanted them, but you didn't have God with you, you wouldn't really be happy. Isn't it incredible how often we hear stories about how miserable the lives of the people in Hollywood really are? Isn't it incredible how depressed so many really rich people end up? And the reason for that is that they have exhausted pretty much every avenue for finding fulfillment that you hear about in our culture, and they still aren't happy. Imagine how much despair they must feel. No wonder they're depressed. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Is God with us or isn't he? That's the whole question. Now, sin is the opposite of the decision that the Israelites make in the story. Sin is trying to get the blessings that God wants for you without God's presence. Think about times when you've sinned and you've known that you're sinning. Somehow it seems like God is farther from you when you sin, doesn't it? The relationship you have with him feels strained. And the reason that you sin is very often because you want something really good. That's why Christians have said from the very beginning that idolatry is at the heart of every sin. Idolatry is worshiping some created thing instead of God. If you steal from somebody, even when you know it's wrong, and you know that it will keep you farther from God, you've shown that you care more about the thing you're stealing than you care about God. Your desire for the thing is greater than your desire for God to be with you. Sin is choosing created things over the creator. It's trying to have the promised land without the one who made the promise. Now, as a church, we've been praying a lot this year that God would renew our church in really noticeable and measurable ways. We've been hoping that God would lead more young people into our church and that we would be blessed with a vision for our future. We decided in March that our church does not intend to close its doors anytime soon and that we will ask God to bless our work so that our church can live into the future in new ways. We've begun to put a lot of effort into honoring that commitment we made, too. All of these things are wonderful goals that are really important to have in our minds. It's one of my greatest hopes that um, God would help our church to grow and that this beautiful community would be shared with the world. I really want to be able to look back in a few years and have some measurable way of saying, wow, God has really blessed our efforts. And selfishly, I want to be able to say, we did a good job. We did all we could, and it all worked out. I'm a math person at heart, and I love measurable stuff because it gives me a sense of certainty. I want the numbers to tell us how we're doing. 
It's at this point that the voice of Martin Lloyd-Jones from that sermon I heard in high school comes. And he said, you can have outward prosperity and affluence. The church may appear to be doing remarkably well. Successes, conversions, enemies defeated, good finances, good figures. There are angels that can do that for you, you know. But is God in the midst? We can be successful in all kinds of ways without God as a church. We can bring tons of people into our doors. Why would we care that they're here if we don't, they don't meet God here? We can serve our community in all sorts of ways. We can give food to the poor, and we should, because we're called by God to do it. But what's the long-term value of a lunch given to somebody who, who needs it if they don't encounter God? We can have a thriving youth program that brings young families to our church. But what's the value of a popular and fun youth program where our youth don't encounter God? What it often means is we can't prioritize success in terms of measurable things. Believe me, I wish we could. But you can't really measure love for our neighbor. You can't measure a sense of community. Now, the same thing goes for us individually. You can have success in every measurable way, a really high salary, but it's all worthless if God isn't with you. It's sand slipping through your fingers. It's not satisfying now, and it's not going to last forever. I think we have enough examples of sad, rich, and famous people that we don't need to learn that lesson again. You've probably had examples in your own life where you seem to have gotten everything you wanted, but you still weren't happy. No, God has to be with you. So if sin is choosing God's blessings over God himself, then repentance is the opposite of that. Repentance is, is choosing to give up on a sin, even if it gives you some momentary pleasure, so that God can be more fully with you. It's deciding not to seek even really good things if it means that you don't feel God's presence. The Israelites did that in our passage. They decided that they didn't want the land flowing with milk and honey, and they didn't want victory over their enemies if God wasn't with them. If you're not going with us, we don't want to go. I pray that if we have to, we'd do the same thing as a church. We could get people in the doors by not preaching the gospel and not saying to the world what needs to be said. We could turn this place into a corporation and forget that our whole purpose is to facilitate relationships with God and with people. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody here. But I pray that we'd be a spiritually mature Christian congregation that recognizes that the whole point of our existence is that when people walk in our doors, they meet God here. He's the one that's going to save this world and not us. If you see ways that we've failed to seek the presence of God, tell somebody where we need to repent, let us repent. And I also pray that each of us would individually seek the presence of God in our life over other kinds of successes. It's good to be ambitious and to make good use of your time. It's good to seek God's gifts and blessings. But all of those things should be subordinated to seeking God himself. Again, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody. Where we need to repent, let us repent. Paul said in Philippians 3 that he had every reason to be happy with his life before his circumcision, or his conversion. Oops. Um, he had every reason to boast in his status as a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as trash for the sake of God. For the sake of Christ, I have lost all of these things and count them as trash in order that I might gain Christ. The purpose of all of this isn't to make our world better or to make life go easier for ourselves. It's not about building up this church that can grow big and last for hundreds of years. It's not even about desiring to see peace and justice reign on the earth as it is in heaven, although we should certainly do all of those things and we would yearn for those things. But instead, as Paul says, it's about knowing Christ himself and the power of his resurrection and even the fellowship of his sufferings. It's true, a persecuted Christian that faces down the gallows is in a far better position than any workaday billionaire simply because God is with him. When God is with you, it is a privilege to suffer for him. When God is not with you, nothing will satisfy you. Paul was somebody who had an incredibly difficult life, but God was with him. And since God was with him, he managed to be content no matter what. He said later in his letter to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all of these things through Christ who strengthens me. It is all about the presence of God. Everything else is gravy. Because you can seek those blessings of peace and justice and land and milk and honey all you want. The moment that you find them, they will be sand in your fingers and you will never be able to hold on to them. The entire world finds its being and is upheld only in the word of God himself. Everything outside of the presence of God sooner or later falls into chaos because God's absence is the definition of chaos. But seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. So as a church, let's do what we have to do to seek the presence of God. That might mean making prayer a more regular part of our lives. It might mean practicing whatever spiritual disciplines work for us. It might mean prioritizing stuff that isn't measurable over stuff that is. It might mean repenting for the ways that we've sought created things over the creator. Whatever the case, let's seek the Spirit's guidance so we would be empowered to love God and really love God and not just the stuff he gives us. Let's pray. Creator God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find their rest in you. Give us wisdom and spiritual maturity so that we would know that everything in this world is useless if it doesn't come with Christ. Help us to find our rest in Christ alone. Amen.